Amen. I ask you to turn to Luke chapter 2 this morning. Luke chapter 2. While you turn there, I want to, um, I just want to say thank you. Uh, and I'm, I'm certain that I speak also for Josh in this. Uh, the congregation gathered a Christmas gift for us. Uh, and we received it last night. And it's, it's always overwhelming to me. It, it really is overwhelming. Uh, in, in my old Baptist days growing up, I think they would have called that a love offering. Uh, I feel such love for this congregation. I know that Josh does as well. Just want to thank you for your generosity to us. It, it really does blow us away. Um, so thank you. Thank you from the depths of our hearts. We were really grateful for that. Second thing before the text, um, Josh's birthday is today. <laughs> Happy birthday, Josh, on Christmas Day. Nice of you to share that with Jesus. <laughs> I'm guessing as a child, it was probably difficult to separate the two, and so it's probably been a little challenging. So happy birthday to you. We're grateful for you. Our text is Luke chapter 2 this morning. It's a text which speaks of the birth of Jesus. Last week we studied a text in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 1, which talked about the conception of Jesus. And I told you last week that, that Matthew's gospel is told from the perspective of Joseph. Luke's here is told from the perspective of Mary. And the reason we know that she treasured and pondered up all of these things in her heart is because she told her story. She shared what it was that she was thinking on the night in which her son was born. So here's the good news of Christ. Here's the gospel according to Mary. We'll pick up at Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, and we'll read through verse 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem. And see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it 
wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. This is God's word. Let's pray for the help of his Holy Spirit. Father in heaven, uh, we begin by simply giving you thanks that you have sent forth your Son into the world. And that through this Son, you have saved sinners like us. So now as we come to this text of Scripture, it's a text which has been read so many times. We pray that you would allow our minds and our hearts to slow down and not to slide too quickly over it. But to see and hear the rich beauty which you have given. Grant us those ears. uh, Ears to hear. Hearts of faith. And would you again use a sinner to point to Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. One year after J.C. Ryle wrote his gospel commentary on Mark, he published and finished his gospel commentary on Luke. It was 1858. And we came to this text, he said, Every birth of a living child is a marvelous event. But never since the world began was a birth so marvelous as the birth of Christ. It was a miracle like no other. God manifest in the flesh. And the blessings it brought into the world were unspeakable. For it opened to man the door of everlasting life. He's right. Of course, it is a miracle too vast for words. And yet, in the moment, it went almost entirely unnoticed. As far as we know, it was only two other people who were present when God entered the world as a man. Only Mary and Joseph were present to see the self-existent firstborn of all creation, the King of glory, lifted from his mother's womb. Those of you who have children may remember or recall the overwhelming sense of that moment. It's both wonderful and it's terrifying. The fact that God would entrust to your care this, this tiny little one. And I know you remember, don't you, the, the, their little faces. And I know you treasured and you pondered the, the, the quiet moments with them as you looked at the nose and you thought, how does God make a nose so small? And fingers that have fingernails already on them and ears that are shaped so delicately. And all of that you pondered and wondered looking at your own children Mary had every bit of that, and then so much more, because the tiny helpless frame in her hand was God's son. And then as she rested and recovered, you imagine the baby Jesus laying on her chest as shepherds come and they recount. We we heard singing, there was an announcement, there was an angel, and then the entire sky burst forth with light. And angel upon angel upon angel told us about that one. We saw it as an invitation. We should come. 
We should see this baby. And so the weight of the moment is, is summarized in Mary's thoughts. Verse 19, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Seems to me as we come to reflect on this Christmas morning, we should think of verse 19, Mary's pondering as a kind of invitation for you and I as well. So I would invite you to join with Mary and treasure and ponder the Christ. In those 20 verses, I see three places of irony. And these ironies really magnify the the sovereignty of God. The first is the august. The second is the angelic. And the third is the average. So we'll start with the august. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1 begins with a really simple phrase, In those days which is to say in the days long after Israel and Judah had already forfeited their privilege of governing themselves, long after the crown of King David had departed from Jerusalem, long after Israel had lost her freedom, in those days a foreign army and a foreign king ruled over God's people. But not just any foreign king. Verse 1, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. If you were born and raised in the church, you've heard that verse so many times at Christmas. But it's helpful to stop and know the story because when you know the story, the irony becomes clear. He was born Gaius Octavius. He's actually the, the, the great grand nephew of Julius Caesar. At Caesar's death, he declared... Gaius Octavius is is my true heir. He's my true son. And so for a while, Gaius Octavius shares rule of the Roman Empire with two others, these three men. And one of those men you know of, his name is Mark Antony. And Mark Antony is is married to Octavius' sister. You may remember, of course, that Mark Antony falls head over heels for an Egyptian queen whose name is Cleopatra. When Mark Antony's infatuation with Cleopatra causes him to neglect his responsibilities for his family and for Rome, the entire Roman Empire, led by Octavian, brings down a naval battle. And in that naval battle, Octavian crushes Mark Antony. It's B.C. 31 following this victory for the first time in many centuries, the Roman Empire comes together. It's actually consolidated under the authority of one man whose name is Octavian. And after much success in 27 BC, the Roman Senate conferred on Octavian the title Augustus, meaning majestic, sublime, highly revered. And from then on, he simply is known as Caesar Augustus. Caesar the August. You and I think of George Washington as the father of our country. Romans thought of Caesar Augustus in that same way. He he reigned for 41 years. He's thought of as a great builder. He's a benevolent ruler. People actually really liked him. He reigned for a period of peace which had heretofore been unknown in the ancient world, which is why one ancient inscription which has been found says, Caesar Augustus, the Savior of the world. That's 
That's Caesar Augustus, who decreed that the Roman world should be registered. It was a display of of power, of control, so that at his word, families who were scattered thousands of miles throughout the empire got up and they moved to the place where their father's family tree could be traced. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Friends, this was a, a, a very inconvenient trip. Ninety miles from Nazareth in the northern, northern part of Israel down to Bethlehem. And that change of location and the timing just seems terrible. I mean, Mary's late in her pregnancy, and all of this from a simple word from a king. It was an act of power and control. If we'd been reading Luke from the beginning of chapter 1, this double mention of the city of David, verse 4, would point us back to Luke chapter 1, where the angel Gabriel said, the Lord God will give to this child the throne of his father David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And then it was John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, who prophesied in Luke 1, 69, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. And so you get this repetition, throne of David, house of David, city of David, house and lineage of David. And on the surface, there's just this simple decree meant to count the people so he can tax the people. And yet beneath the surface, God reigns and ordains the events that Caesar would never understand. On the surface, Caesar gets to show his power and show his control. And the real story of power and control is bubbling beneath the surface where a seemingly insignificant man in long-forgotten Nazareth gets up and he goes to Bethlehem, the ancient birthplace of Israel's greatest king. And Micah chapter 5 verse 2 foretold that the Messiah, a great king from Israel, would have to arise from a place called Bethlehem. But Mary's from Nazareth. And Mary's late in her pregnancy And if she delivers in Nazareth, it just won't fit. But Joseph is from Bethlehem. And so the august Caesar says, you must go back to Bethlehem. It was a huge inconvenience, but under the surface, God moves his son to Bethlehem to qualify him to be the king, the true savior of his people. And all the while, it's Caesar Augustus who sends him there. Entirely unknowing. And and you recognize here, don't you, the place and the timing. Verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You see, Mary gives birth to God's son in David's city because this august Caesar executes the will of Almighty God. And Caesar has no clue. 
But God knew, didn't he, from all eternity past that he would use a decree from this man to move the Virgin Mary to Bethlehem at the very end of her pregnancy so that God would have his son delivered in David's royal city. David Gooding says in the process of tightening his grip on this huge empire, Caesar actually organized things so that Jesus, son of Mary, son of David, son of God, destined to rule on the throne of Israel and of the world, was born in the city of David, his royal ancestor. Luke is asking the question, and he invites you to ask the question. Now, who again has power? Who has control here? Who is sovereign? Who really rules the world? Who controls the place and the timing of every person under heaven? So for every sincere Christian, the irony of the august answers the question for you and me with a word of comfort, doesn't it? And that is that no human king or queen or president or emperor or is ever as autonomous as he or she thinks he is. The supreme ruler of this world has always been Almighty God. So you and I don't ever need to be shaken by the decrees or the rules of men of this earth. Because the same God who moved Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem so that his son could be born the king of kings, that's the same God that moves you to the places he wants you to be and the timing he wants you to be there so that he can accomplish his purposes. It's the same God who ordained the exact days leading up to the birth of Jesus who ordains your every day. Same God who knew the precise season for sending help to his church surely knows the needs of his people and he's ready to send help in just the right moment. Augustus, majestic, sublime, highly revered, he's called the savior of the world. Who's majestic in the story? Who's the savior of the world? It's the Lord God Almighty. Treasure and and ponder the Christ. We've glanced at the august. Now let's stare at the angelic for just a moment. In the small town of Bethlehem, the birth of Jesus was almost entirely missed, which is unusual, of course, because ordinarily the birth of royalty causes nations to celebrate. Nations rise up and have huge parties. J.C. Ryle says the announcement of the birth of the Prince of Peace was made privately at midnight and without anything of worldly pomp and ostentation. Like the world missed it. The angels could not miss it. And the reason they couldn't miss it is because they've been waiting for this moment since time began. The glory of the Lord. And it's the angels' voices who rise up and tell us who this child is and what he's worth. In the same region, it says, shepherds doing their jobs, watching sheep. Suddenly, one single angel appears from the Lord, and the glory of him is like a bright light, it says. Verse 10, and the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, every word of the angel's message is really very important. Fear not. And he has to reassure them. Because the appearance of angels in the Bible almost always invites terror. These are not chubby little babies with wings who hold bow and arrows. They're not helping to make love connections on the face of the earth. That's not an angel in the Bible. These are mighty, imposing heralds of God's word. And so the shepherds actually need to know that they're safe. We're not going to die here in this moment. And the angel pronounces good news, which is the Greek word which comes to be used for proclaiming the gospel. What is this good news? The good news is that God has become a man. And that good news brings joy because God is doing something spiritually, fully, and finally to free his people. And a baby has been born in the hometown of King David. And it's good news for all of God's people. That is all whom the Lord came to save. Who is he? Number one, the text says he is the Savior, which points to his role as a deliverer. He saves his people from Satan and from our sins and from the punishment that those sins deserve under a holy God. Do you recognize that to be the Savior, to be the deliverer, God actually has to provide the deliverer to deal with his own justice? Secondly, he's the Christ. It's the Greek word for Messiah, meaning this is God's anointed one. I get a little concerned sometimes when I hear people talking about a great preacher or some great leader of a Christian organization, and they say, he's been anointed by God. And the reason I feel a little funny about that because it's a stamp of authority placed by humans on another man. It's got warrant in the Old Testament, of course. Various kings and priests were literally anointed with oil as a sign of the office that God had given to them or the purpose for which they were called to undertake. Philip Ryken says that God had always promised that he would one day send a savior to end all saviors. And this Messiah, this anointed one, would save his people forever. That's Messiah. For centuries, the Jews had been waiting. And now the angel of the Lord says, this baby has been anointed by God to undertake the office and the mission of Messiah, which is a declaration. Jesus is the Christ. Beyond Jesus, I just don't really know. If anyone else has a true biblical anointing. But I know Jesus, the Savior, has been anointed by God. And you don't really need another. He'll be plenty. He'll save the world. And you don't need a great Christian leader or a great preacher to be anointed by God. Because Jesus has been. And his Christ-ness is enough. Three, he's the Lord. That name points to the, to the deity of Jesus. He is God. And as God, he's thereby sovereign to rule over 
your life and mine. And so the angelic voices tell us who he is, but they also tell us what he's worth. Skip down to verse 13. And then at the conclusion of the angel's words, that one angel is accompanied by, it says, a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So here's the irony of the angelic. Who's the good news for? The angel says, it's for all the people. And yet, why are the people not the ones praising God? Because they don't know what they don't know. So the whole world in a moment should have burst forth with praise and glory to God. In fact, the people of Bethlehem, the people of Judea should have been shouting with joy the songs of thanks for God's goodness and grace. And yet it is a silent night. Except for the angels who cannot contain their celebration. I wonder if you and I would sing with the angels if we heard this pronouncement today. Like, do you remember that this good news is for you and for me? Unlike the angels, I suspect that we scarcely understand what misery sin has actually brought into the world. You and I scarcely understand the joys and the purity of heaven. You and I scarcely understand the privilege that God has opened the door to eternity for the likes of you and me. You and I scarcely understand that all that became possible because God became a man. And so the irony is, of course, that you and I who receive all the benefits and all the blessings of this Christ, it's the angels who, as one pastor said, had never sinned and needed no Savior, angels who had never fallen and needed no Redeemer and no atoning blood. It's the angels who are interested. It's the angels who are exuberant over what they understand. And the, the Bible says that, that when the Christ comes, when the Christ does his work, 1 Peter 1, it's the angels who long to peer into and look at the substance of this glorious good news. And we scarcely consider. Treasure and ponder the Christ. So we've glanced at the august, we stare at the angelic, and now we rejoice with the average. We have this part of the story, as I said, because Mary shared it in her later years. In fact, Luke's the only one that tells us about the shepherds. But you really need the shepherds, and so do I. For one thing, there is a prophecy in the Old Testament. It's almost never mentioned at Christmas time, Jeremiah 33. It's the place where God said there would be shepherds surrounding Jerusalem at the time when this righteous branch springs up for David so that even the shepherds are a reminder that they too declare that this Jesus is the Christ. But you see, those shepherds are so much more than a fulfillment. They're a reminder that Christ came into the world to save the average and the outcast. And for that, we find comfort and joy. We tend to romanticize the shepherds, like Moses was a shepherd, David was a shepherd, Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd, but shepherds were not viewed very well in Israel at all. 
I mean, they're busy doing their work when it comes time to keep the ceremonial laws. They're out in the fields, and so they're weathered, and they're haggard from camping, and they're short on showers and hygiene, which is why by the Jews they're considered unclean. Moreover, somewhere along the way, shepherds developed a reputation of being liars and thieves. And so in the nation of Israel, a testimony of a shepherd cannot even be used in the civil court. And yet these these are the people to whom the announcement came. And the irony of the average is, The first non-family members to hear about the birth are these average outcast shepherds. Look slowly with me. Verse 9, the angel appeared to them. Verse 10, the angel said to them. Verse 12, this will be a sign for you. Verse 15, let us go and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Verse 17, they saw it, they made known the saying, told them. Afterward, verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen and had been told to them. Their surprise at the privilege of being counted worthy of the good news is evidence, actually, of their humility. It's evidence of their awareness of their spiritual need of a right posture to receive the mercy and grace of God. Why did God send the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, to be either born in a cave or a stable, and to be placed in an animal's feeding trough. Why did he start life there? Because that's who he had to be in order to save those he came to save. So God first proclaimed the gospel of Christ, not to the religious, not to those who saw themselves as deserving of the news, He sent it first to those who counted themselves unworthy. What's the point? God sent his son into the world to to save the working class outcasts like the shepherds or like me. We tend to romanticize the shepherds in much the same way we tend to romanticize thoughts of ourselves. On the surface, we're clean. Perhaps the outside of the cup is well polished. And it really is easy to think well of yourself if others think well of you. But what happens when the magnifying glass of God's Holy Spirit searches your heart? What happens when the Spirit begins to convict you that your service to others or your humility or your generosity or your patience is tainted by slavery to the praise of others? more than it is for love for them or for God? What happens when all of those deeds that you thought were so righteous are noticeably mixed with motives that make you sick? Where would your heart tumble in those rare moments when others don't see you with rose-colored glasses? Those are the moments you need the shepherds the most. The shepherds preach this unvarnished good news that might really, in fact, be the substance of Mary's pondering. In fact, on this Christmas day, it's the unvarnished good news that you really need more than any other. Christ came into the world to save the average and the outcast. And when all of the externals are are wiped away, 
when my heart is really laid bare, that's actually who I am and who you are. So we treasure and we ponder the Christ. We glance at the august, we stare at the angelic. But the gospel for the average, that's the cause for rejoicing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would cause us too to treasure and ponder the Christ and this message of the gospel to the average and the outcast. We pray now that you would continue to receive our worship and bless and help us through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Our